This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. And good evening, Hearts of Oak. Thank you so much once again for joining us. And it is wonderful to have Mr. Carl Benjamin back with us once again. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Not at all. Uh, It's a perfect time to have you back on as Lotus Eaters have hit a milestone. Tell us about that. Yeah, we just passed our second anniversary. So we're two years old now. So uh, it's been exciting we're in the toddler stage so we're running around and smashing everything up but uh hopefully hopefully we'll continue and mature out of that um no it's everything's going really great uh, so, and i'm very proud of all the team and all the hard work they've done and uh, all the support we've had so it's um it's been great really i haven't really got that much to say other than everything's brilliant could you please stay in the toddler stage because i don't think we want anyone actually growing up so please stick at that <laughs> well We've we've been pretty good, I think. You know, we've been uh, you know maturing. Tell me what again when you start something, then you look back over a number mm. of years on on having it. Uh, what was kind of your thought on on starting, or was it kind of open ended? And when you look back, kind of give us some of the the points that you think actually we've really hit it on that. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that there's no one thing I can point to and say, right, that's the thing or whatever. It, it, the The purpose has just been to um, attain a generally high standard of content, uh, which I think we've done. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, we've been doing our best on and to generally improve our own knowledge of the things that we are not only against, but the things that we're for. Uh, so we tend to do quite a lot of work on of an area that most people aren't even aware exists conservative political theory uh, we actually do a remarkable amount on that because it seems important that the right has some way of articulating what it actually is that they want except for not left uh, and so this has been quite a major focus of at least my work but i think of a lot of work the work of a lot of our presenters um, and i think we're doing quite a good job of uh, making it clear that actually we can start talking in the in frames that are outside of what the left are comfortable with uh, i actually think that nigel farage kind of stepped in it uh, today actually um with his frame i'm sure you saw the video that was going around where he was like ah london is minority white yeah. now uh that's that's terrible framing that the left used to write a bbc article they said no no that's not true it's actually 56 percent white what are you talking about it's like sure but that's because there are lots of Europeans there, and Europeans, of course, have white skin. Uh, when you apply these kind of broad, abstract categories, you end up kind of missing the forest for the trees. Because what Nigel meant was it was 44, uh, sorry, not 44, 36%, 37%, I think it was, if you round it up, um, white British, as in English, Scottish, Welsh, and Northern Irish, which is much more of a concern. You know, and it just goes to show you just how many Europeans are living in London, 20% or so European uh, in London, which is crazy. And also, when it comes to just, just raw number of immigrants in London, people who are born in other countries, 
that's 40%, 41% if you round it up to the nearest decimal, uh, to nearest percentile. So there are more people, more foreigners born elsewhere in London than there are Englishmen at the moment, uh, which I mean, I think is a concern. I think common sense would dictate, actually, this is probably where you really need to think about just stopping immigration. And if let's, not here, when? No, let's get that because obviously the census has thrown up quite a bit. And as always, it takes a long time uh, to go through that. And I remember mm. the first time I came to London, to, well, to live 20 years ago, but studied before then, and coming from a mono-ethnic culture, completely white, Northern Ireland. Who else would want to go to Northern Ireland whenever we're beating the crap out of each other? And Believe it uh, or not, Northern Ireland is populated by the Northern Irish. It is, it oh, is. Crazy. Yeah. Shockingly. And <laughs> Madness. I'm sure we'll get criticised for that. But then you come to London and you meet people from all over. And London mm. is, I guess, what you call an international city. Um, mm. But you have to look high and low for what you would term as Englishness in the city of London. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised, very, very surprised, because, again, I didn't know what to expect. I expected I would come to England, and I realised I, I didn't come to England. Um, but there have been, and the census has thrown up massive changes in our society. Obviously, it's continued every every 10 years, and it gives a snapshot well, the census just reveals the problem, and there's a lot hidden from the watchful eye of the public uh, from the inaccuracy of the census itself. Um, for example, we have no idea how many illegal immigrants there are, because why would they fill out a census? Yep. And that's going to be probably between one and two million, uh, making it fewer than one in four people in England who is actually English, which, again... If this isn't a concern now, when will it be a concern? You know, if the top, if, if England's, I think it's four largest cities now are minority English, at what point do the English have a right to say, well, hang on a second, you know, we, we have a legitimate concern with this. You know, I as an Englishman, I don't approve of this. And if this was happening in any other place to anyone else, I can completely understand why they would say, well, hang on a second. I think that uh, if, if Paraguay was being overrun by uh, Vietnamese immigrants so that almost all of their cities were turning majority Vietnamese and they were like, can we just reduce the number of people who are entering the country? I would say, well, that's a completely reasonable thing to ask for. Uh, if for no other reason than just have the time and the space to be able to integrate those people who have already arrived. But I mean, it's it's not happening, obviously, and it can't happen because the number of people who have come, I mean, if there are no, like, if the, every third person you bump into in London is English, how are you going to end up acclimatizing to anything that approaches and approximates English culture? You know, you're going to, you're going to acclimatize to whatever the culture of the groups that you're living around are. And these people do tend to come and live in groups, and it's not any malicious plan or anything like that. It's for the same reason that if you moved to Spain, you'd move to an area of Spain where there were lots of English people because you knew the culture, you knew the values, you had something in common, you were able to talk to them easily without having to learn a foreign language. It's just incentive that makes people do this. But there's a consequence to that, and it creates these kind of ethnic enclaves that take on an increasing aspect of colonies in which they replicate their home culture with no regard to the wider culture of the country that they're living in, and I just don't think it's a prudent thing to do to allow these to continue to spring up. We should just stop immigration, I think. Yep, absolutely. Now, the, the response, I think, when Nigel put up 
might have been about less or it might have been London was somewhere uh, about it being minority white and the response from Sajid Javid. It could have been, but Sajid Javid's response was, so what? And that's not really a conversation. I mean, Nigel's putting up at least come back and you kind of criticise the left for not coming up with a rational debate and conversation. But then you look, obviously the Conservatives are not on the right. <laughs> they're on the left as well. But No, no they're a left-wing party. They're a blair but, party. Uh, but I saw that as actually our government are devoid of any understanding or any ability to discuss this issue. Whether it's right or wrong, let's have a conversation. But if you can't have a conversation, you can't even get to where we are as a society. And that really stuck in my mind. Well, it's hard to say, but the fact that Sajid Javid can't recognise this as a concern of the English when he himself is uh, either Pakistani or Indian heritage, well, maybe it's a lack of empathy, I think, is the way I would frame it. Because again, if this were Pakistan or India that was being flooded by Chinese immigrants, and the, the Indian government or the Pakistani government was just like, yeah, we will make it so that half of your country is just full of Chinamen, I'd be like, well, I think the Pakistanis would have a, a valid complaint and a valid reason to say, well, no, we actually don't want this kind of cultural change. And it's weird that the government of India or Pakistan are unsympathetic to that, especially if there was a Chinese man who was controlling the immigration policy of Pakistan. It would be like, right, okay. So, I mean, do we talk now about implicit bias? Do we talk about unconscious bias? Do we talk about the all the canards of the left now? Or are we just stuck with Sajid saying, I don't understand what the English concern here is. So well, maybe you could try and empathise with the English concern. No, absolutely. There, there was another thing which came out, and I'm curious to have your thoughts on it, which was the religious change, and specifically the UK, I think, minority Christian. And from we are quite different on this from my point of view as a Christian, from your point of view as an atheist. And it's an interesting discussion on how that fits and is that positive. So what are your thoughts on that change? And do you see it as a, a positive or negative thing for the country? I can hardly see how it would be a positive thing. Um, at this point, I don't even know if I do describe myself as an atheist. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a religious man, but I am an Englishman, and I think that an Englishman should be a Christian. And so I'm not saying I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to say I'm an atheist. Um, and it's not that I believe in God or anything like that. I just, I just don't like to be part of the problem. And part of the problem is simply the lack of religiosity among the English, actually. Uh, we don't go to church. We don't believe in God. We don't see that there was a bonding agent contained within the religion uh, and in fact my parents didn't get me baptized and i was i asked them about this when i was young and they were like well we thought you'd leave it to be your choice and i was thinking well no that's not the point of it you know that's not the point of these rituals you know the the point of the rituals is not that it is a choice it is that you are part of a continuum you are you are part of a continuity of a culture of a civilization and actually the appropriate thing to do is to get your children baptized if you're english or if you're scottish or if you're welsh or whatever uh Northern Irish, I should say, not just whatever. Um, just need to be dismissed. Don't worry, you're forgiven. Um, thank you. Uh, but it's, it's, it's because you're a part of a culture, a part of continuity. So I actually have had my sons baptised. You know, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, ah. I might be out of, 
<laughs> I might I might be out of the, the 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 out of step there because of the time and place that I was born, but at least I've done my small bit to put them back on the continuum, right? You know, the, the great sort of Burkean continuum of Englishness. Uh, I've done my part. So, what would your let me ask a um, a person? You can unpersonalize as much as you like, but then how yeah. would how would you see it if then your um, children growing up if they become part of their local church and actually say, well, this is what we believe, that there is a God, there's a heaven and a hell, there's, um, it's not just luck and chance, there's a lot more to that. Um, how would you, because today, I guess, many people see, we're taught that that's negative, that actually having a, a belief is so old-fashioned and actually we're so enlightened today yep. that we can get, so how would would you see that as a, a positive or a, or a negative thing? I don't let my son blaspheme. Okay. I When he says, oh, my God, I correct him and say, oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't let him blaspheme. I don't know what that means either. I don't know why I started doing it. I don't know why I felt compelled to not allow him to blaspheme. Uh, because he, he had said, actually, uh, he was probably about four or five. He was very young. when he, he was He's only seven now, but like, you know, it was a couple of years ago. When uh, he, I don't know how the conversation came up because it's not like I ever talk about it, but it must have been like something at their school or something like that. And uh, and he was, so I believe in God. And I was like, oh, that's good, son, you know. Um, and so from that point onwards, I've not, I don't let him blaspheme. <laughs> it's like, well, you you said so, son. Um, I'd be I'd be happy if they were, you know. I the the interesting thing about being the age we are, growing up in the era we were in, is that. I don't know about your parents, but my parents were just pretty typical examples of the boomer generation. You know, my dad liked Ziggy Stardust, but he was he was a conservative person, but he liked the the, the liberal culture, right? My mum was pretty au fait with it, just like, eh, don't, don't really care that much. But um but they but that mean that meant they were just products of the time and place, right? And they didn't have any particular uh, critical analysis of what they were doing. And they came from very working class background. So I don't expect them to have done. But it meant that they they had received a very strict conservative upbringing from their parents. Uh, and whilst my parents were very conservative with me in some ways, they were not conservative with me in other ways. And religion was one of those ways. They were not interested in religion. And so I didn't get to go to church. And now, as a child, I was thrilled about this, you know. Oh, good, I don't have to go to a church on a Sunday. That sounds terribly boring. Um, but... Uh, one thing I noticed at my one of my nan's funerals, my first nan who died during the lockdown's funeral, is that my dad knew all the words to the hymns. Yeah. I didn't know any of the words to the hymns. I didn't know any, and so he could sing full throatedly, and I was, and he knew what the song, the tempo, and the pitch was, and I was just looking at the lyrics, going, "Okay, but I, I don't know how this goes," because I just never heard it, right? Because when he was a boy. He had to go to church. He had to sing the Sims. So this is just like second nature to him. And so he was embedded in this kind of cultural continuum that I'm talking about. Whereas I feel like I've been kind of plucked out of it. And so I can see it traveling by and I don't know. And so, and it's not his fault, but like, I feel generationally, uh, the boomers dropped the ball on that one. You know, they thought, oh, well, we've got freedom now. We've won World War II. We're, you know, we're the free West. And it's like, okay, but... <laughs> There was something that you are still embedded in that you've actually denied to your own children. And so I, I don't see that as being a good thing. 
even if I was, even if I grew up to be resentful of Christianity or resentful of having gone to church, at least I would have the ability at some point in my life to look at a church and be like, at least I know where I'm supposed to be, you know, when I'm, when I'm, you know, at a funeral or what I'm supposed to sing or something like that. But I personally have no real idea. And it's like, there's something, there's something missing. And so I've never had this kind of spiritual longing or anything like that. And I, I can see in people who have it, that there is something that I'm missing there. You know, there is, there is a, a you know, there's just a, an avenue that's closed off f for me forever, I feel. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't relish the fact that I'm an atheist and I would probably prefer it if my sons weren't, to be honest. Mm, I'm not going to be like, you know, you have to read the Bible, you have to go to church because, <laughs> you know, I, it, it would feel inappropriate for me as a non-believer <laughs> to impose that on them. But if that's something, I, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to feel that, that door's closed to them, you know, and if they find that themselves, then f great, you know, that I, I think they will be happy and uh, that's all I want really. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I sat in many boring church services. So very many boring church services. Good. Good. Uh, so you know the words of the hymns. I do. And I was, because I went to um, Jeff Wyatt's funeral, uh, one of the great champions, I think, against the lockdowns. Uh, the church was packed uh, up in Milton Keynes Way. And again, it was all the old hymns. I'm sure we sang Jerusalem. I'm sure we sang I Vow to Thee, My Country. I'm sure it was, and it was people, I looked around and I could see maybe three or four people not singing. Everyone else was singing with gusto, with pride. Mm. Uh, with, and again, you don't often see that in the UK. You don't see uh, those songs being sung, certainly not by well, our generation, but then the next generation coming up. But you're right; they they oh, don't yeah, know they, that. They've got no idea. And they and they provide because every hymn, I guess, has a story of who who wrote it, why it was written, and there were circumstances at the time. So, in a lot of those old hymns, there is history, and I think that losing the ability or the knowledge of those hymns means we also lose a connection to a history. Uh, of mm. Englishness. And I guess that's what you're saying, that those hymns can connect you with part of English history and heritage. Yeah. And with British history wider in a wider context, but yes, it, very much so. And I'm deeply concerned that this is something unrecoverable. You know, yeah. it, I don't know if we can just bring it back and I can't see how that's a good thing. What does that mean for, people like, like organizations like Lotus Eaters, uh, does that put you as a as a prophet, a voice in the wilderness of, because uh, you, you are speaking truth, you see what is happening around and you're saying this is not the way we should be as a society. You're mm. in the podcast, you take what, three stories and you're analyzing them and you're calling out the, the corruption, the, the decadence, the the failure of our society in, in many areas. What is that like? What is that kind of what does the future hold for that type of voice of reason, I guess? Probably censorship, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, probably cancellation. I. I mean, it's, it's, it's genuinely hard to be optimistic about the future. Um, I don't believe that our government is a representative government. 
Uh, Liz Truss actually was more, yeah. actually quite representative. Yeah. She was English and she was stupid. So she mapped the country fairly well, not to be insulting, but we keep voting for Labour or the Conservatives. Like, we must be idiots. Like, we must be idiots. Both of these parties are totally captured by, like, the international oligarchy that is currently centralizing the entire world under its auspices. Like, we must be fools. We must be idiots to think about this. Like, vote for whatever party Nigel Farage is setting up. That's why I say, you know, just get get Nigel Farage in power, get him, get him as an MP, get anyone, get anything. Oh, God, I don't care at this point. Like, the, if, 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 it, if it's not obvious, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, right? There is just, there's not even, like, an oncoming train. That'd at least be something. You know? <laughs> no, this is a black hole that we're going to, a black hole that is forever. There's a, the black hole that you can't ever pull yourself out of. And for some reason, no one wants to pull the brakes on the train. And it's like, great, okay. And so we don't, we've, we've got a government, I mean, Rishi Sunak, literally Goldman Sachs banker, yep. MP for North Yorkshire, because the people of North Yorkshire just vote conservative because they do. They've done it since, uh, was it 1923 or something like that? It's li literally 100 years. And so it's the safest conservative seat. And so they parachuted in an Indian billionaire. It's like, right. How is that representing the people of North Richmond or Richmond, North Yorkshire? You know, how does that represent, you know, anyone in Britain? I mean, Richie, Rishi Sunak himself was like from Southampton. You know, this is not, he is not representative. What does he bring? To represent means to represent, literally bring forth something that is otherwise absent. Okay, what's he represent? Well, the international order, the global bankers. He represents, you know, the WEF, all of these forces that are struggling to undo the nation state entirely. And there we go and we keep voting for it it's like well <laughs> don't know what to tell you you know we're screwed i'm not it's not not good news my worry is that we could be talking in 30 years time and it could be the same we need nigel and it worries me as a country oh, yeah. because you you look across europe and they had for instance, Salvini was the, the hope for Italy. Then suddenly you've got Giorgio Maloney has appeared. And country after country, you have either people who have pushed through or people who spring up. And, you know, we kind of look around and think, is there any? Oh, there's Nigel. OK, there's Nigel again. Let's say this is Nigel. Yeah, but what is it about the British system? What is it about our society that we're not bringing forth, I guess, those champions of freedom, of people's liberty. Why are, why are we missing that? That's a great question. Um, there are a few theories. I mean, I think that the problem is that the political class is so overwhelmingly left-wing that it means that anything that appears to be right-wing is just stigmatized as Nazism, which I consider yeah. a form of socialism, yeah. so not right-wing. Um, and so there's just no, no avenue for success for people. And for some reason, the British public aren't in revolt yet, you know, because uh, with Brexit, you could have said that was a minor revolt, but that's not nearly enough. I mean, what we need is for a kind of, you know, five-star sort of party coalition yeah. uh, to come around. And then for the British public to say, yes, I'm just sick of everyone in Westminster. I'm just sick of it. And we're going to clear them all out and we're going to replace them with a brand new batch of people who, frankly, up until this point, were not professional politicians. Because people always say, oh, but who's going to run the country? Well, the civil service are going to run the country, as they always have, as they always will. The politicians aren't there pulling levers. <laughs> like, they're not, they're not there signing, you know, they, they are 
just merely saying yes or no. That's all they do. When they're presented with a decision, they say yes or no. They don't draft the legislation. They don't even have interesting debates in the House anymore. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't hash out ideas. They just sit there calling each other racist, basically. And it's like, right, okay, well, until these people are gotten rid of, then nothing's going to change. And until the British public are the ones who get rid of them, because you're ultimately the deciders, then nothing's going to change. And so if you're not happy on the absolute freight train to destruction that we're on, well, you gotta you gotta choose something else, haven't you? Choose something outside of the Blairite consensus. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, Jeremy Hunt's love affair with with Blairism uh, that'll lead us to destruction even quicker. But they, they, <laughs> but they're they're all just left wing and neoliberal, and like yeah. they don't they don't have any attachment to this country. And Rishi Sunak is such a perfect representation of this class of people as well. He owns like four mansions around the world. You know, he's worth 750 billion uh, million pounds. And, you know, his wife's the daughter of an Indian billionaire. He has no commitments to this country. He has no ties to this country. He goes and swans around with Justin Trudeau and Klaus Schwab at the latest like G20 or whatever it was. And it's just like, you do not represent me, a man of the shires. You just don't. You know, you are not from, you know, you. And the, the clip of him going, well, I don't need working class friends. Of course yeah. you don't. You know, but I have a working class family. So actually, you know, I'm I'm looking at Britain now as a country that's kind of occupied, you know, the last occupied territory of the British Empire. And that it looks like they're kind of trying to recreate the British Empire in miniature within England. Mm. And I kind of despise it, frankly. I'm not an imperialist. I'd rather everyone just had their own countries and lived in them quietly and kept to themselves, you know. But yeah, I don't see any. Uh, I don't see any good news on the horizon, to be honest. Sadly enough, <clears throat> tell me about censorship because obviously there have been uh, changes since we last spoke in terms of social media, in terms of gatekeepers, and you've mm. managed to, I think, do an extremely difficult job of getting news out using mainstream platforms and also alternative platforms tell us about that kind of ongoing battle that you face and trying to educate the public but also use whatever means are possible to get that out well you have to self-censor a lot put simply you just, yeah. the 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 platforms you use apart from twitter now actually which recently under elon musk which is the only ray of light in all of this elon musk's takeover of twitter because he seems to be generally normal not a radical left winger which is fantastic but every other platform in the mainstream the silicon valley platforms has an editorial policy as in there are political opinions you are not allowed to voice there are opinions on events that you are not allowed to voice and it's like right okay well, you can do that because it's your platform. However, that does put you in violation of Section 270 or 230 in the United States, which is the piece of legislation that treats social media platforms as platforms and not publishers, because, of course, publishers have editorial processes. Well, it turns out now that these people do as well, so maybe something should happen about that. Um, maybe their protection from being sued for the things that have been posting on them should be rescinded or they should be forced to rescind their editorial policies. Because, of course, what we have to do is just make sure that we don't say anything that violates these editorial policies. It's not tremendous fun, uh, and we fall afoul of this a lot, because these policies get more and more restrictive. Um, 
but you do what you can and you do the best you can because this is these are the platforms that people use you know we would go wherever people were using but it turns out the people in the silicon valley platforms in their defense are technically very good so you can see why people are incentivized to use them and so you kind of have to as well and so you have to live under the sword of damocles of the progressive hegemon in uh in san francisco whichever one it is that you're using. I mean, you can see the way that Apple is throwing its weight yeah. around at the moment with Elon Musk. I mean, he, he is aware that a war is coming with Apple, and I don't think he can win it, to be honest. Uh, Apple's a gargantuan, gargantuan com company. And, uh, I mean, he's up against some really big odds. And the thing is, well, I think some quite vile people. Like, yeah. I think there's things that Elon Musk probably personally wouldn't do. I don't think there's anything these people wouldn't do because I've seen them do it all. You know, I've seen them do it all. Like, was he Balenciaga or Blanchiga, whatever it's called, fashion brand that recently put out what I mean just looks like disgusting, debauched pedophilia. Yeah, and they aren't being deplatformed from anything. Kim Kardashian's like, well, I'm gonna have to think about my relationship with this brand. <laughs> but uh, but you know, Donald Trump can be deplatformed from everything on the same day. You know, Jeffrey Epstein never lost his bank account, but Kanye West did. You know, and so very, very interesting the moral perspective of Silicon Valley. I mean, apparently, I, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently, there were um child exploita exploitation hashtags on Twitter. Uh, I wasn't aware of this until I learned that apparently Elon Musk just deleted them, as in they no longer appear and they no longer provide search results and things like that. And it's like, oh, that's a weird thing for Elon to have to do. It's not yeah. that it's weird that he did it. It's weird that he had to do it, right? Because you would think protecting children from exploitation would have been literally the first goal of any social media platform. Of course, that's the most important thing. You know, we don't want children to be exploited on our platform. That's, I mean, A, it's illegal, B, it's utterly immoral, and C, why would I even have to justify this? But no, apparently that was there, and Elon Musk had to take that down. And so that just shows you the difference in priorities. Their priority is making sure that right-wingers don't get to express themselves. The right-wing's priority is making sure that pedophiles don't get to spread indecent images of children. I mean, it's not, not, not a terrible choice on who you're going to side with, is it? You know, people are like, oh, why have you become conservative? So, well, lots of reasons. <laughs> but with that, with that, I guess attack from all different sides, from the this from Apple, obviously threatening deplatform, from the online safety bill here in the UK, and then over in the EU. Oh, yeah. uh, and I'm, I kind of the more that happens, the more I think maybe Elon is legit in what he's trying to do because the whole uh, i'm kind of i don't know uh, none of us know exactly what's what's happening in there he's a smart guy he's a rich guy he doesn't go into things without knowing the full facts and yet he claimed that he was forced into buying it uh, that can't be the case he's too smart for that so yeah, it's interesting thing. what's playing out but then in the middle of that confusion you've got these pressures from each side and the more those pressures come in the more i think maybe he is legit i, I don't know how you see this um kind of having played out i haven't seen anything from him that implies or suggests that he's not legit that's the thing like if he had done something that was a bit mm, i don't know but the way he's approached all of this is frankly the way i would have approached all of this you know like a like a bull to a red rag he seems to be eager for the fight if anything um and i mean I, I don't think he can win it but like i hope he does and i hope he's not destroyed in the process um 
but yeah, no, I, I've got no particular reason to think that he's not in in his convictions as genuine as he claims or appears to be. I've got no reason to think it. Where do you think it's it's moving? Because we've got control and censorship, and not only with the finance uh, with uh, CBDCs, but also, I guess, with a you have different ecosystems. So we see how Apple controls. Uh, they are the gateway to a lot of our media. And if they remove anyone from the app store, then suddenly their exposure collapses. But then even deeper in that, the whole push and certainly Facebook being part of this uh, with the, with the metaverse and where that goes, that kind of blur of reality and what is true and what is not, what is real is not. Uh, how do you, how do you see that moving? Because that will have a massive effect, especially on the younger generation, when all they know is the virtual and they don't actually know the real. Well, at the moment, it looks like the metaverse isn't going to take off and it's going to be a an albatross around Mark Zuckerberg's neck. Because I saw a BBC report the other day that uh, suggested it had 38 regular users, uh, which isn't quite enough for it to be uh, destructive to an entire generation of people, thankfully. Um, probably because it looks like crap. And really, do you really, do you really want to be sat with a VR headset on your head all day, every day? Like, until the technology actually improves to the point where it's just basically comfortable to wear, um, I don't think it's going to take off, thank God. But uh, also, I mean, let, but let's assume it did. You know, that wouldn't be good, would it? You know, things are bad enough as it is. You know, I, sometimes people give me stick about, like, I'm not giving my kids mobile phones. Uh, I saw Andrew Marr on LBC today saying, well, oh, is, you know, is the UK government going to stand up to Elon Musk? Why? For protection of children. It's like, what? It's like, well, I mean, you know, of all the people who's not protecting children online, I think Elon Musk is the least of your worries. But he was like, well, you see these 10-year-olds, these 11-year-olds, they have their smartphones and they go on the internet. And I'm like, okay, we'll stop you there. That's the problem, isn't it? You know, 10-year-olds having smartphones and access to social media. That's the problem. I mean, I think the UK government should frankly ban children, you know, anyone under 18 from having a smartphone. That should just be illegal. You should not, as a, you know, someone who's under 18, be allowed to use social media. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's genuinely a form of addiction. You know, in the same way they can't smoke or drink, you shouldn't be able to have a smartphone. And I, I saw a, a documentary a couple of years ago about um, bullying and online bullying and how it actually affects kids these days. And you know, didn't have smartphones when we were kids. So this isn't something that occurred to me, but it was like, okay, well, think about it. When you leave school, at least the bullying stops, right? At least you go home and you go to your parents, you go see a couple of your friends, whatever, you know, you're not being bullied by a bunch of kids you hate in the playground. But actually when you've got a smartphone and you're just in your room all day scrolling and seeing all these people can message you all the time, 24 hours a day, and you never get away from it. And it makes it 10 times worse. And I'm like, Christ, that is a great point. That's a great point. And so I'm just, I'm just, I am genuinely worse than the Chinese Communist Party when it comes to device use with my children. Uh, my, my son and daughter get a couple of hours at the weekend playing some video games. That's it. You know, the, the Chinese Communist Party says one hour a night. Pfft, you wish. You <laughs> wish. Nothing throughout the week. And if either of them are bad, the first thing to go is their access to, to play some video games at the weekend. And so, actually, I've got to say their behavior has been remarkably good recently since I brought this regime in. They have been pretty well behaved. Um, but, yeah, it, I'm, I'm a total tyrant about it, and I, I think that we should be. I think it's totally wrong to give them these things. You need to do some premium parenting courses. 
Maybe. Maybe I will. <laughs> uh, tell us about with, I mean, there on Lotus Seeders, there is so, uh, so much you cover. It's not only the podcast, but it's the premium content, their book reviews, their film reviews. There is, there is so much. And how do you see that developing? Because you start, I guess, wanting to bring the news to people, educate them. But then you realize that it goes so much deeper than that. And there's so many areas that uh, we need to tackle. I guess, do you, how do you juggle all of that? Um, well, just, just one day at a time, really. Um, I, I guess the, the trick is to, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have been able to recruit uh, people who are intelligent with inquiring minds. And so they have an interest in looking into things and discovering and understanding things for themselves. And once they have done the work, they can then produce a piece of content that explains it to our audience, which is uh, the, the just the purpose of the website, really. Um, and so I guess, I guess I'm just very lucky to have been able to attract good talent, really. Um, actually, sorry, there was something I wanted to pick up on you, which... Um slip my mind back in on the on the thing on it on the thing on children on the thing on access social media uh, i've been really surprised at my two especially my 14 year old and they have they have one or two books generally they're dictionaries anything else is online and yeah. they don't actually so the problem is the education is on the screen they're not yeah. encouraged to go I mean, no such thing as a library or, but no such thing as going, get these books. You know, you'd always have a book list at the yeah. beginning of the year. They're not getting that. And to me, that has a detrimental effect on how they learn because everything is in front of a screen. Mm. I can't see it being good. I mean, one of the, one of the things about having to read something is it teaches you to have patience and longevity in your attention span. And one thing that social media in particular, but generally using a mobile phone teaches you is to have a short attention span and to have no ability to concentrate for long periods of time. And I don't think that's good, frankly. Uh, I did, I did a, did a, a premium piece the other day talking about what I thought the, the, uh, what I perceive the differences between generation X, which I assume your generation X as well. Um, and Generation Z are. And what's interesting is they both are the sort of undergeneration of a much more powerful and impressive or like imposing generation above them, the boomers and the millennials. But also they're, they're both dissatisfied and listless. But the difference, I think, is that we got bored. We got really bored because you didn't have your smartphone. You had to go outside if you wanted some entertainment. You had to actually... You know, and sometimes you wouldn't have any option. You know, you couldn't just be like, right, okay, I'll flick up the video that I want to watch. No, no, no. The TV program you want to watch is on in an hour. Yeah. You've got to wait. You've got yeah. no choice, right? And so you're like, right, what am I going to do for an hour? And sometimes you'd be, you know, in the car or something. You've got nothing to do, you know? I mean, I used to live out in Germany on a on a base uh, as a kid because uh, my dad was in the forces. And sometimes we'd drive back from JHQ in, in Mönchengladbach through the Netherlands, through France, get on a ferry at Dover, drive across and then drive up to Swindon, which would take about 13 hours. And I didn't have any electronic devices. You just had to learn patience. You had to learn patience and you had to engage your imagination. But the thing is the zoomers, they're not, they're not like engaged with the world, but they're not bored in the same way we were. They're, they're you know, they're bored obviously, but they're also constantly distracted. And so the 
the boredom doesn't get time to get them to think about things. You know, they've never got a free moment where they're not just staring at something and they can just contemplate, you know, even if what they're contemplating is stupid, having the time and having that time kind of forced on you, I think is genuinely actually important for your own like intellectual development and your own habit of mind. And I just don't see young people getting that now. And it's concerning. I think it's genuinely concerning. I don't know what the consequences are going to be. What are your thoughts on home education? Because I had a, a home education ag- advocate on uh, me the other week, Sam Sorbo, and it was intriguing hearing her put forward the argument and the reason why that has to be the way forward. And obviously in America, you've got what one, two million children are home educated. In in the in Europe, it's quite different, and in some countries it's illegal. Uh, do you? I, I kind of came away. Well, yeah, that's just. I, I bet that's Germany. I knew it. It is Germany. I lived in Germany for eight years. You, as an Englishman in Germany, you become very profoundly aware of the differences between the English and the Germans. And as soon as you said that, I was thinking it's definitely Germany. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. But but I'm I'm I came away from that thinking. I think this is where we're going as a society. If you mm. want to protect, because up to now we've yeah. trusted the state. And I realize certainly over the last two and a half years, but creeping up to that point that actually there is nothing I will trust the state with. And then you turn your children over each day, Monday to Friday, and you're thinking, if I don't trust the state, why am I giving them that which is most precious to me? And I wonder what your thoughts are, because it's not a a movement here in the UK, and I think it needs to be. (laughs) So I don't actually know that much about home education. Uh, It's just never a subject I've bothered to look into. But um, from what I've learned, essentially what you're doing is denying your child the chance to become a gay transgender communist, which uh, seems terribly (laughs) unprogressive. And I mean, what a horrible thing you could do to that child. so, I, I, like I said, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the quality of education is like or anything like that. You know, and I'm sure it varies, and I'm sure it's uh, something that the government would like to stamp out. Um, but there is something to be said for the concern about the conformity, right? And now, yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that the teachers are like two thirds Labour voters and probably like one third Corbynistas and then another third Lib Dem uh, is is very concerning to me. Like the conservatives have just totally given up the institutions, which is a real shame because actually that's where they're needed most. Mm. Uh, if you, if, and I, I say this to people all the time, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I don't want to go into this field. I don't want to get into that field because it's full of leftists. Like, well, then it's, it's forever going to be full of leftists. You know, if you're a conservative and you're trained in that field, you've got to go into it, you know, and you've all got to go, and you, you know, and until you go and take back the institutions by merely being in them, uh, then they will forever be dominated by the left. And that means that the left will forever indoctrinate our children into becoming insane radicals against their better interests. Yeah. No. What can we do? <clears throat> As we finish, tell us about kind of how people can, I guess, support, because the one of the things I find interesting going there and Swindon talking to you and, uh, and the team and with Callum on the other week and has listened to his lovely trip to the beautiful country of Afghanistan. Uh, but uh, so I don't know whether you send all your staff there, whether that was a punishment, but that's no, no, he, he, he's a, he, he <laughs> likes the idea of going to crazy places because he can see what's happening in Britain. God, it was, we had a great conversation, but I mean, there's, there's a lot on, on Lord Cedars and obviously it is, 
people can subscribe and you have a a massive subscription base which supports and that's how you can function and put out what you do so i mean just as we finish tell us about that and then how people can kind of be part of what is happening there uh yeah i mean we 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 operate something of a gated community on the website uh so only paid subscribers can comment on the articles and on the uh, you know stories and information we put out uh just to make sure that people understand that like we we don't want a low quality of conversation there right and it's also we don't really want to do that much content moderation as well because we've got a small team and uh, and we don't really need to provide another space for left-wing activists to just spew bile at people which is all they do frankly as far as i'm concerned uh everything that comes out of their mouth is essentially some form of character attack you're a racist you're a sexist you're a transphobe blah 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 what they're saying is you're bad from a progressive standard it's like okay but i'm not a progressive so i don't care what your standards are and uh piss off um so yeah the the, the best the best way to support us i suppose is just you know become a member on um you know hopefully you enjoy the content we're making uh come and join the community come and you know chat in the live streams that we do on the website uh come and comment you know tell us what you think and uh we you know join the discussions that we have because i'll tell you what we got some like the there's the, there's a, a benefit and a drawback to having a gated comment section the uh, the drawback is of course you get fewer comments but the benefit is that those comments are usually very good and very interesting and some people make some brilliant observations that uh, i wouldn't have thought of had i not been just scrolling through our comments so uh, thank you to everyone who does leave us very insightful comments you know because we we are interested in learning about what is happening and what we can do and how we can formulate a response to all of these things and uh, i do think this has got to be a team effort absolutely well carl on that thank you for coming on and it's great to see Lotus Eaters going from success to success um, and I know uh, if people don't watch it one o'clock Monday to Friday they can get the podcast and also everything else and everything is on lotuseaters.com every other social media but it's also available directly so Carl thank you so much for coming on once again and sharing what's happening over there in Swindon my pleasure thank you so much for having me not at all. Let me just finish off with our viewers. Thank you so much for tuning in on this pre-record on a few days before you get it. Or if you're listening on Podbean or in the podcasting apps, thank you so much for downloading and listening on the go. And uh, we will be with you very soon. Uh, this will get you on Monday. So we'll be back with you on Thursday for our next interview. So thank you so much for joining us and goodbye. If you like what we do, Sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.